Hi, everybody. Welcome to Icragorama. Today, it's a very special episode. We're going to talk about how geoscientists can advise policymakers. And we have Quentin and Nick in the studio today. And so Nick is talking about geothermal energy and Quentin about uh, radon issues in homes. So Niv, are you aware of these issues? Yeah, well, I mean, I know about radon certainly through Quentin because he actually was my professor when I was an undergrad in Trinity. So I yeah, would have a bit more knowledge about that. And it is it is it's actually such an interesting topic and I don't think it's certainly like talked about enough. And then, yeah, talking to um, Nick about geothermal and I think that's really exciting because you know, it's a sustainable energy source and I know we need to, you know, move a lot more to that. So it's going to be a really interesting chat and also just, you know, the role of geoscientists and policymaking. You know, we all have such a role to, to play and it's just be interesting to hear their experiences. is iCragorama, the podcast about everything Irish geoscience, with Nee Faulkner and Ben Coven. Today, our guests are Quentin Crowley and Nicholas Vefias from iCrag. Good morning. Good morning. Hello, Nick. Hi, Quentin. Hey, how's it going? Ah, Hello, there he is. Quentin, thanks for doing this, guy. That's pretty, it's pretty cool. Hi to both of you, first of all. Yeah, so we're going to start with uh, maybe introducing you to our audience. So maybe um, Nick first, um, who are you, where are you based, um, and, and what is your, your main, main occupation at the moment? My name is Nicholas Vefius. I am a researcher at ICRAG. Uh, I have a background in exploration geology, where I worked at a mine in Kalahari Manganese Field in the Kalahari Desert for, for about a year before I finished my PhD and, and moved to, to Ireland to, to work in, in laden zinc deposits in, in the Midlands. So you are, from, you are from South Africa, right? I am indeed, yes. I uh, can't hide the accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a lovely change. Lovely change in geology, actually. What about you, Quentin? My name is Quentin Crowley. I'm an associate professor in Trinity College, Dublin, um, where I'm also director of the Trinity Centre for the Environment. And I started off my geological career in Galway, what used to be UCG and now NUIG, so I'm showing my age. <laughs> uh, and I was there for my bachelor's and my PhD before I moved to the UK as a postdoc. And I stayed in the UK for a number of years working for the British Geological Survey uh, before I returned to Dublin to work in Trinity in 2008. And I've been here since then. Thank you. So uh, just an opening general question for you guys. When you started your geoscience careers, did you guys think you'd be involved in policymaking? As in, did you see your career taking this pathway? Absolutely not, no. When I started my, my geoscience career, I was all about taking, taking mineral out of the ground. I was heavy into, into mining. That's what I was, it's where I wanted to go. I uh, wanted to rough it out, rough it a bit. But... Um, I've been slowly guided by whatever forces are present into this direction of sustainability. And, and it's undeniable that the, the world is moving in that direction. And I think a lot of myself and a lot of other earth scientists have kind of realized that uh, 
there is an integral link between extraction and sustainability. It's not just take, take, take all the time. What about you, Quentin? Yes, thanks for the question. So I can say absolutely hand on heart, when I was an undergraduate student, the whole idea of linking geoscience and policy, it just didn't come up. So I think naturally most geoscientists of my generation didn't really have it in their minds that they might somehow make a contribution to policy. There might be a few exceptions here and there, of course, uh, but certainly it wasn't foremost on my mind as I was graduating with my bachelor's or indeed in my PhD. But I have seen, you know, lately within the last uh, decade or so, there have been increasing opportunities to contribute to policy um, by providing scientific advice. And I think that there's generally more appreciation of diversity of skills that geoscientists have and the way that they might contribute to policy. Definitely. Uh, in the season opener, we had Murray Hitzman and uh, he told us how he was an advisor at the White House and he also didn't really expect to, to land here. But uh, it's interesting that to me, there's not many more scientists, you know, people who actually know about uh, all these issues that we are facing uh, closer to, to, um, uh, to policymakers and in, you know, the government and, and state agencies. Um, so I think before we get into that big discussion about scientists and policymakers, I think maybe we should probably dive a little bit deeper in what exactly you're researching and, and how does it have anything to do with policy? So we'll start with you, Quentin. Um, so do you want to just give us a bit of a, an overview of, of your area of research and, um, and how you sort of, yeah, give us an overview of your area of research. Sure. Thanks, Neve. So what I'm going to mention is uh, radon. It's not my only research area by any means, but it's certainly the most that's relevant to uh, policy. I have a question for you, actually, or a request. Take a deep breath. So you've just inhaled some radon and radon, it's a gas and it occurs everywhere. It's all around us. It's not something that we can avoid. And it's something which negatively affects uh, air quality. So I've been interested in radon for a number of years because it's something which is geogenic in nature. It mostly comes out of rocks and soil. It emanates from the ground. Um, we can't see it or we can't smell it. And we can use our knowledge of geology or geoscience systems in general um, to help make predictions about the distribution of radon, where it is and where it might accumulate. So this is, a, for me, a really important area, and it's an interesting link between natural sciences and things like public health, for instance. Yeah, because it's the second highest cause of, of lung cancer, isn't it, um, inhaling radon? Yes, that's right. So tobacco smoking is number one, and globally, radon exposure is number two. And um, it's, it's, it's a strange kind of uh, statistic, but in Ireland, approximately 200 people are thought to develop lung cancer from radon exposure in their homes. And these, this equates to a greater number of deaths per year than road traffic accidents. You know, so it's something quite incredible, I think, that a substance, a gas which occurs in our homes and we can't detect it by sight or smell, actually relates in or translates to so many deaths from lung cancer. That's really quite extraordinary. 
Okay, I, I, I have a lot of questions because, <laughs> all right. So Raiden, to me, I thought it was a noble gas and I thought all noble gases were inert. So how, how can it interact with our body? That's the first question. And then why do we find it in our homes more than elsewhere, I suppose? You're spot on, it is a noble gas and noble gases are inert. So it's chemically inert but it's unstable radioactively. So it means that it occurs, it produces um, energy through radioactive decay. So to give you an idea, to picture that, the concentration of radon is usually measured in becquerels per cubic meter. And one becquerel would be one radioactive disintegration per second, so per cube of meter. And usually outdoors, we have concentrations maybe about three to five becquerels per cubic meter. But indoors, because we have reduced airflow, radon can accumulate over time. So the concentration can build up in any enclosed space, whether it's a building or an underground cave or anything like this. And unfortunately in Ireland, we have some very, very high concentrations. So the average population weighted mean uh, indoor radon concentration in Ireland is around 100 becquerels per cubic meter. And that compares to a global average of 40, around 40. And we've recorded some very high, like, uh, you know, tens of thousands of becquerels in some rare cases in Ireland. So it's something that, you know, we do need to be aware of. It's not something that should cause concern or panic. Um, it's easy to measure. And if it's high, it's possible to do something to lower it. But I guess the difficulty is if we don't measure it and if we ignore it, we just don't know. And we're living with this uncertainty. Is it higher in Ireland for for specific reason because of the geology for example or yes I know I'm kind of biased as a geoscientist but geology is the most important factor in terms of um, sources of radon so you might have heard of radon in the context of granites and certainly some granites can result in higher probability of finding elevated levels of radon whether that's in the soil or whether it's indoors but it's also associated with other uh, lithology types, other rock types. So in Ireland, for instance, the Clare Shales um, are particularly high in radon or homes above the Clare Shales. But, you know, think of it like um, a layer cake. So we know we have the bedrock geology, but there are other factors such as quaternary geology and the aquifer type and proximity to faults and, you know, soil permeability. So, we can, we can link high radon to certain lithology types, but it's more complex than that, and that there's an interplay of different geological characteristics um, which influence its, where it accumulates. So you've been, um, part of your research has been uh, working on a, a radon map of Ireland to, to highlight these, these areas. Why is that necessary? And why was an updated um, map required? If you go to the EPA website, EPA is the Environmental Protection Agency in Ireland, and they have a website, radon.ie, where you'll find an existing map. And this map has been around for quite a while. That particular map is based on um, indoor radon measurements, and they're aggregated by 10 by 10 kilometer grids. And for me, this was really a starting point of my research into radon, in that I, I wondered, I was curious to see how could we incorporate geological information into this map to improve the spatial resolution and perhaps also improve the predictive power. So that particular map is, is part of a legislation in the building regulations. And um, independently, 
myself and my research team in Trinity uh, published an updated map in 2017. Um, and this incorporated the bedrock geology, quaternary geology, aquifer type, and the soil permeability with the indoor radon measurements. So we were able to reduce the spatial resolution um, from 10 kilometers to one kilometer pixels. And uh, we were able to highlight certain areas which hadn't been picked up before as probably high radon areas. Did you find the, the increased resolution, did you find areas that in, in the maps had been previously um, highlighted as low areas? And then actually when you reduced it down to one kilometer squared, did you find that some areas were really high within those sort of supposed low areas? Well, largely they're, they're comparable as you would hope, but there were some exceptions to that. And these tended to be in areas with not many indoor radon tests. So inherently the data set is biased for indoor radon because we have more measurements where we have more people living. Mm -hmm. So most of the measurements are in the cities and we have relatively few in the countryside. So if we have low population density, if you had, for instance, you know, one or two high measurements, the whole grid might've been categorized as high on the old map, whereas not so in the new map. Is the government requiring this map? Like, did they, did they use it to implement policy? Yes, so the existing map has been part of the building regulations for quite some time, and the new map is, will be incorporated into an updated version of the building regulations. So the legal implication of this really is for uh, new housing, it's for new builds. And if you build a house in an area which is designated as a high radon area on this map, then that house has to incorporate certain preventative measures, such as a radon barrier in the construction. Mm. And all new homes which are, have been built since um, the initial act should have a standby uh, pump or sump, which can be activated at a later stage if necessary. Because it's quite easy to mitigate for radon once you know you have it, isn't it? It's just, you know, the pump will just, it's just sort of better ventilation, effectively, so you're not having this buildup in the house, right? Yes, that's right. So key, key is ventilation, but not any kind of ventilation. So for instance, if you have high radon emanating from the ground and accumulating in the house and you open a window, particularly if it's upstairs, it's possible that you could inadvertently increase the extraction of radon through the foundations and into the house. So that would not be a good thing. The ventilation that's uh, most effective is sub-foundation ventilation. And this is where these sub-foundation pumps or sumps um, are really crucial. So they can drastically, and they do drastically reduce the indoor radon concentration. So if you have an old house, which was built prior to the regulations and doesn't have a sump, it's still possible to have these retrofitted in the old buildings. I'm curious if uh, Nick has uh, heard about these issues before Um, and if you, if you have a comment uh, or a question for Quentin. Well, I'm actually listening. It's quite fascinating, actually. Um, I was thinking, Quentin, is there any study, and it would be a fantastic study to do, of the differences in radon um, abundance per floor of apartment buildings? Good question, Nick. So, yes, uh, there's been quite a bit of research on this. Radon um, is a dense gas. It's denser than air. So it tends to settle out on the ground floor or basement. So generally speaking, um, this is where you'll find the higher concentrations, but there are exceptions to this and it depends a lot on airflow. So I know of examples, for instance, where the top floors of multi-story apartments or office blocks have had high radon. And this is sometimes linked to the updraft from elevator shafts. 
you know? So it really depends on the air circulation in the building, but generally speaking, the highest concentrations are found on ground floor and basement. You mentioned if the windows are open or the ventilation is upstairs, you might have an extraction through the house, which I understand. What if you had a, a, a extraction system or ventilation system that was quite thorough in, in all the rooms that had ventilation ducts in every room that was sucking out simultaneously? Would that uh, work? Yeah, good question. I mean, it's something you'd need to test and it comes down to airflow. And if I can give an example of a story, I was conducting some radon research just before lockdown in February, 2020, with one of my PhD students. And we stayed in a and b We had all the radon measuring equipment. We were measuring radon in soil, but we decided to measure radon indoors in the house we were staying. And actually it was really high. Uh, so we opened all the windows on the ground floor and created a cross breeze. When we left for the day, we came back and measured and it was still quite high. It was lower than earlier, but it was still well above you know, where it should be. So if there is high radon, you need very good ventilation to actually lower it to acceptable concentrations. Opening the windows probably is not gonna do it. That's it. Did, did you let the, the B&B owner know that they had really high radon rates? We did actually, we had a lot of leaflets from the EPA with us. We gave them a leaflet and they came and asked us questions. They hadn't tested, but they said they were going to test. And I gave them my number to get in touch if they wanted to talk about any options or you know, scientific questions. So they were very receptive to the idea. Um, they were both farmers and spent a lot of time outdoors, but they, um, they did have young children and they were concerned about possible health effects on their children indoors for long periods. It's, it's really crazy to me that it's not something that, that people would know more. And, um, and also, like it's, if it's such a high risk of, of lung cancer and you live in a, in a house, for example, with high rate and, and you can't do much about it, I don't know. It's just like, how can you live with that? Do you have to move or can you, you, know, or can you uh, change the ventilation on, on all the houses? But like... It might be like a high cost for people as well. So, Yeah, cost is a factor. And I think the whole notion of whether people test or not, and if they get a high measurement, whether they remediate, is actually a really complex topic. And I've been working with um, a postdoc through ICRAG who's looking at this very subject about the psychology of decision-making and perceptions of risk. And apparently it's really easy for us to ignore something that we can't see or smell. So even people who get a test and it comes up with a high result, fewer than half of these will do something about it. So most people who know they're living with high radon will just completely ignore it because it's easy to ignore it and it's easier to do that than actually deal with it. That's mad that you, you know, because you mentioned that it's higher, amounts to higher road, like deaths and road traffic accidents a year. And like, you know, we obviously know a lot more about road track of accidents you know you see on the ads on the telly the whole time you know, wearing your seatbelts, don't drink and drive and all that sort of stuff where there's absolutely no like public safety stuff about about radon and then yet those that that even know about it still you know don't necessarily act on it are there any incentives um as in you know which think the government would consider putting in either grants or, or tax incentives? Obviously the money is a, a really big issue in terms of trying to retrofit your house with a pump. Are there, is there any sort of thing like that in the pipeline or available for people? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, to begin with, I'd say actually 
the awareness of radon in Ireland is very good compared to a lot of other countries where I've traveled and conducted radon research. If I go on to you know, knock on someone's door and ask for permission to access to their land to sample some soil gas, and they ask what I'm doing, generally they've heard of radon. So I think the public awareness is pretty good in Ireland. And I think that's largely down to the EPA in their uh, public campaigns. Now, regarding the actual, the cost of testing is very low. It's usually like 50 euro or less. Um, the cost of remediation is, is higher, and, but needn't be hugely expensive. The, um, the EPA actually conducted some research on this about best ways to incentivize this. And they wrote to households in um, West and Midwest Ireland and offered them free tests. Um, and most people did not take up the free tests. So cost is a factor, but it's not the only factor. I think it goes deeper than that. And it's easier for people to ignore something that they might be scared of and actually deal with it. And again, that comes down to psychology. Yeah, it sounds a bit like, um, you know, STI testing. If you don't get tested, like, oh, you you know, you can ignore it. It's it's as you if you don't have it, but it's, it's not true. So it's kind of the same problem, I suppose. Um, yeah. like you don't want to see the problem. Um, and I guess an additional uh, challenge with radon is that if illness does occur, it's somewhere down the line. So it could be, you know, seven to 10 years or more from exposure. Um, and people may think, okay, I live with high radon, but my health is fine. I'm fine. Why should I do mm -hmm. anything about it? But the radiation damage accumulates um, internally in the lung tissue. And this is what causes damage to the DNA, which in turn leads to a higher probability of developing lung cancer. But this has actually been empirically um, constrained through international studies. There's one in particular which um, took data from 13 different European case control studies and found that um, around 100 becquerel per cubic meter increase in indoor radon results in around a 16% increased lung cancer risk. Wow. So to me, that's the message really, which should be yeah. spread out there, that there is this definite known relationship between increased radon concentration and the likelihood of you developing lung cancer later in life. Yeah. And, and part of spreading the message uh, is also appearing on, on TV uh, program. Uh, we know that you've been on the, this show, Echo Eye. <laughs> so how was this experience for you? And would you do it again if it was you know, um, offered? That was so much fun. I really enjoyed that. It had its challenges because it, it's, the filming was over pandemic and lockdown. And actually we had to you know, postpone and reschedule so many times. Um, but in the end we got there. And I have to say it was a really, really good experience. Um, and the team were great. The production team were very inquisitive. They asked great questions. Uh, we had several one-to-one -one interviews just to discuss the topic and how the program could be structured and what the central message could be. And, I found them very receptive and it was really, really good experience for me in terms of, you know, communication and getting the message out there. Yeah, it was a really, really interesting show to watch. And it was it's certainly because obviously like I, I work with Quentin and I work with Maeve as PhD student as well. Um, and so I was like, oh, my friends are on the telly. <laughs> so, um, but um, just a sort of a, a final question before we move on or just a general discussion. I know we've talked about... Um, radon in in Ireland but Nick have you are there any sort of things with radon in in South Africa how does it sort of vary um I I've never tested it honestly 
um, and Quentin can can uh, probably give a better answer with this. But um, South Africa is a very old old geology, and a lot of granites and and metamorphic rocks. I imagine there's a lot of of radon coming out of the ground in in, in, a, in quite a few areas. Um, it's just not something that they really that they really have an emphasis on testing though. There, I I would imagine this is kind of a, a more upper tier concern when it comes to to um, health, but uh, in, in countries like South Africa, they, they, there's a big focus on on mining and extraction and, and profits before that that kind of comes into play. On that note, uh, I think we uh, are going to talk a little bit more about the future of energy in Ireland um, with Nick. So Nick, I know you from uh, when you were working as a postdoc in um, ICRAG. So can you maybe clarify your, your, your actual position at the moment? So are you still a postdoc in ICRAG and, or are you, did you leave? I didn't really follow everything. <laughs> no, yes, I'm, I'm back as a normal, normal standard postdoc in ICRAG dealing with lead and zinc deposits. Right. Um, my, my involvement in geothermal energy, uh, officially, it was a three-month um, secondment to the Oireachtas through Science Foundation Ireland, and um, where, where I looked at geothermal energy and, and the policy around it. Right. So you were SFI researcher in residence, right? Yes, that is correct. Yeah. Yes, um, it's a bit of a funny. It's a bit of a funny thing. I mean, I was in, at the time. I was employed by UCD, funded by SFI, and housed by the Oireachtas. <laughs> yeah. So the Oireachtas, for people who don't know, is the the Parliament of Ireland, right? So yes. the Senate and the the Dáil. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Um, the Oireachtas is is the, the highest body of of legislation in in Ireland. And so you were working with the the library there. Um, how did that work? Were you working directly there in the building or, or were it, was it also like uh, from the distance from your home? So, so this, I took part in what was referred to as the public service fellowship. And it's something that I believe that SFI would like to do every year. Um, I took part in the pilot program, the very first one. So there was a lot, a lot of optimism and, and uh, plans for it. We were we are by we I mean the, the people who I think it was seven of us were selected. We were supposed to be housed in there um, in their offices to interact, but then COVID happened, and uh, everything became virtual. It's okay. uh, it 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 worked to mostly, but um, obviously physical would have been a lot better. But regardless, they were fantastic about it. They allowed us. They interacted with us daily. We we got to meet. Uh, speak to TDs, um, um, the climate change committees, research staff in Northern Ireland, research staff of the Oireachtas uh, Library. Uh, it, was, it was a great experience to, to really pick their brains and see how research writing is different compared to what academia is. And it, and it really is different. Was it just the seven of you, were you all geoscientists or were they sort of from different areas of scientists and... Yeah, you mentioned that you, you had um, meetings with the TDs. Like, would you were you guys assigned a TD to work directly with, or how did that work? Uh, it was well. The, the beauty of the, the 
the fellowship was that they didn't just focus on geoscientists. They took a broad range of people. Um, my side was geoscience. There was law tech. One, one chap, he worked in drone technology. There was e-health. Um, there was nanotechnology. So it's quite, quite broad and all looking at really specific topics. It's a great fellowship because to bring in this kind of expertise could cost quite a bit of money to take on someone like that full time. So here we have an opportunity where scientists can learn, but also give back in a, in a sort of mutual arrangement through SFI. So yeah, with the, with the TDs, we, it wasn't necessarily, a, we didn't really get to assign a TD because they all were very busy, especially with COVID happening. So there was one in particular, I won't mention any names, but um, he obviously had time for us and he, he sat down with us for about an hour and, and we chatted and got to hear thoughts and how the different counties um, reacted to science and uh, really kind of getting our heads to kind of understand the, the different counties and when, when it comes to policy. That you, a, blanket, a blanket policy arrangement doesn't really work unless you, you have to consider everyone and how they might think. I know that your background is is more in in mining and exploration geology, as you as you mentioned earlier. So, how did that um, um, fellowship in in geothermal energy uh, come to come to play for you? Like, um, why did you decide to do this? And also, did you know uh, a lot about geothermal energy before, um, or did you have to learn um, on the go? My background is in mining, but as I've progressed in my studies and my research, it, as I mentioned earlier, you know, sustainability has become more of a, a factor in, in my research and to the point where it's, it's a motivating factor eventually. Uh, it went on from raw, raw materials, then it moved to hydrothermal and fluids underground and how, then it moved from how elements like arsenic are mobilized And then I got the idea of geothermal energy from fluids. It was more of a, of a hobby in the background than anything else. Um, but so when I, when I saw the SFI call come, come up for a chance to be involved in policy developments, uh, I jumped at the opportunity. You know, what, what better place to learn policy writing than the Irish Parliament itself? So did you suggest... The, the topic of geothermal or had they already laid out the, the areas that they wanted studied? Well, I saw, when I saw the option, uh, um, the core, I actually had a lot of my, in my mind, I was thinking of CCS, which is carbon capture and storage. Also, also similarly related to, to geology. And uh, I, had a, I had a chat with um, a colleague in, in iCRAG who said, you know, why not geothermal? Because it's, it's quite a popular topic at the moment. And it's something that the Irish government is, is really looking into. The beauty of the Oroctus placement specifically, because there were other departments of, in Ireland as well that were taking place, but only the Oroctus was offering the, their researchers to choose their own topic. So I thought, oh, well, that's a great opportunity to, to put this forward. And that's, that's how it went from there. That is not something I expected for sure. So um, yeah, that's great if they can choose their own topic and come forward with ideas for, for policies and, and all that. Mm. Um, it is... Sorry, sorry it, is, it is great. Um, it is great that you can adapt your own project and, and put it forward. But it, for, for, I found that with a three-month time frame, it used up a bit of time 
to try and get to a balance between the, yourself and the hosts of what it is that what the project's about. Whereas if the project was presented, such as the other departments, it, it was already laid out. You just have to get in there and start. Yeah. So it, it was it did take a little bit of time to find that that uh, balance. So maybe can you briefly remind the audience what is geothermal energy exactly, and how can it be applied to to Ireland theoretically? Sure. Uh, well, simply put, uh, uh, just to make it nice and simple, is geothermal is heat energy that is stored in the earth. Now, different countries will have different definitions of that, but generally speaking, it's heat underground that you use for heating. And you can break it up into two main types deep and shallow. So of course, the deeper you drill, the higher the energy potential, the more heat you can get out of the ground. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to drill deep, drill deep to get a benefit from the, from the heat. Uh, a few tens of meters will be fine. With the advancement of, of um, heat pumps, you just need about 10 to 15 degrees Celsius and, and you can heat your house. Yeah, my, uh, my understanding is that shallow geothermal energy is mostly for warming up one house or like maybe a group of houses but then there's like the deep geothermal energy that can gives you a few a few megawatts uh for like a whole city for example that's right yes uh, so generally speaking shallow it's usually residential they will dig under your a few tens of meters into the, into the ground in your garden and they'll put a nice layer of pipes and that runs through a heat pump into your house and you it heats your house for a, a quarter of what the cost would be for normal oil and gas. So it's a lot cheaper. It's a lot cheaper to run, but it's not cheap to install. The Cliffs of Moher Welcome Center, I think is geothermal. The IKEA in, in Dublin is uh, geothermal with, with waste heat as well. So there, wow. are, there are people who are, are doing it. Now, when you drill deeper, you've got to have the right setting, of course, that, yeah. to get that kind of heat. So yes, you can develop um, broad electricity, in, in Cornwall, they've recently drilled now and, and they've hit a, they've purposely hit aim for a fault that they can push water into and pull it out again in, in a nice little cycle and heat up that, that, that fluid. Yeah, so what's the potential in, in Ireland? So what have you found out during your placement? The potential is huge. It's uh, massive. We've only really begun to scratch the surface. The problem is we don't know and, and it requires a lot more um, research into the, the, the potential of areas. For example, in the Netherlands, there are areas that if you drill a hole, there's a 99% accuracy of what you're going to hit in terms of heat in certain areas in the Netherlands, because that's, that's, how, that's how thorough they are with their reporting. It'd be nice to get to that kind of level, um, but that's what we need to do in Ireland. And there is a big push from the government and from, from DEC and the GSI to, to do that and achieve that. I mean, we, we're sitting in our houses now with our, I've got a t-shirt on, you know, Ben, you've got a, a thin hoodie on, but we're all warm. We don't even think about this, this energy. 80% of our heat, which is of our heat power is coming from oil and gas, 80%. In 2018, that, that amounted to around 17% of all energy-related CO2 emissions. So there's plenty of, I need to say there's plenty of room for innovation in the sector. Yeah, that sounds like both your problems, Quentin and Nick, have a lot to do with building uh, new houses and like the way we're going to build new houses in the future as well. And so 
yeah, I'm wondering, do you both see like Irish cities in the future being more um, aware of, you know, how to build sustainably houses and, and buildings in the near future? That's a really good question, Ben. I'd like to be optimistic. I think in some respects, yes, you know, hopefully we've learned some lessons from the housing boom in Celtic Tiger times with, you know, the mica and pyrite issues with building materials, but I'm not convinced that's the case. Um, and I think more could be done, not just in building materials, you know, even thinking about building materials, we ought to know um, what the gamma radiation source from building materials is. So we can calculate how much radiation people receive just from, you know, the building. This is a legal requirement in the EU, but the truth is we don't know this for Ireland and that's a gap in knowledge. Or if I can give another example, um, in the Czech Republic, there's legislation there that um, there's a legal requirement to measure the radon concentrations in the soil before a house is built. Um, and in Ireland, well, this is in the Czech Republic, it's the only EU member state with this requirement. But this would be so simple to do in Ireland. And for areas where there's rezoning of land, so if land was previously agricultural and there's new housing on there, even with the best radon map, if there's no radon measurements for that area, there's a high degree of uncertainty. So having some way to reduce that uncertainty by measuring radon concentrations within the soil gas and the permeability gives you much, much clearer picture of what you would expect to see on houses built there. And I think more could be done in terms of um, sustainable communities for building materials and sites of housing. When in Quentin's case with, with radon, like he mentioned earlier, you know, you can't see it, you can't feel it. It's not too big a deal, you know, in people's minds, but, but heat is a big deal. Um, and there is a push for, for heating, renewable heat. Currently, Ireland's, Ireland's renewable energy is vastly dominated by wind, electricity. Renewable heat's not even a factor, basically. Uh, they, and, and it's something that they need to change. Ireland stands to be very penalized, heavily penalized if they don't meet their EU targets in renewable, in, in, in carbon emissions. So yes, I do see, I do see there's going to be a big push for re renewable heat in, in residential sector. There are grants that offer installation um, fees off of heat pumps, but there's no, at the moment, there's no differentiation between air source heat pump and ground source heat pump. It's, it's a one source grant. And right. Ground source, which is ge geothermal, is a lot more expensive. So if if you then you want to install a heat pump, one is a couple thousand, the other one is ten thousand. They both you both get three thousand off. Which one are you going to choose? You know you're going to go for air source, which is fine, absolutely fine. But there, there needs to be a distinction of of the different types of, of heat pumps and their potential. So you believe there should be a change in the in the legislation so that the renewable solution um, would be uh, implemented preferentially. Yes, yes, yeah. and there is. And, I mean, and, that and, makes and, sense. And you know. It's something that they're working towards, for sure. Are you guys like optimistic about the role of, of geoscientists in implementation and policy advising? I am quite optimistic about science interacting with policymakers, more so now than I would have been a few years ago. And one of the reasons for this is COVID. And I think there's been a big change in public perception of the value of scientific work. 
And for COVID with the development of vaccinations, I mean, the rate at which these vaccinations were developed was totally unprecedented. And I think this has really highlighted how, you know, basic science is really important. A lot of the time scientists are unseen by the public eye and they're conducting research, which, you know, is totally under the radar. But there are occasions where um, this research is a really valuable foundation for something really big. So I, at the moment, I'm quite optimistic about that. Nick, what about you? Yes, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about uh, how so, the role of scientists in, in, in interacting with, with policy. Um, I think it's important to, to recognize and, and keep and preferentially enhance the connection between base level science and, and fundamental service delivery. And I think uh, the government is recognizing this as well. SFI is, certainly is. I mean, in the end, that's what it's all about, is, is the role of science scientists in, in public service. And uh, so, yes, I do think there is, a, 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 there is optimism there. And I think Quentin's hit it on the nail there with, with COVID as well. It's something that a lot of people have kind of, and maybe a lot of people have, have seen that the, the use, you know, the, the potential of scientists and of course, there are those who, who don't like scientists as well. So that also went the other way. <laughs> yeah. Um, so would the opportunity present itself? Would you, would you both continue in the role of a policy advisor and even maybe, you know, take even more responsibility if, if it comes to that? Yeah, I, I would. I would. I mean, my experience has been very positive. Um, it's, it's nice when policymakers and the researchers express an interest in your own research and obviously I do it because I think it's important to me but I realize it may not everyone may have that perception I think more could be done really in helping people to understand the potential for geoscience knowledge and skill sets and methodologies to contribute to all kinds of societal challenges you know and maybe some of these are more tangential and maybe not be so obvious in their connection um, so if there's some kind of forum or some way in which we can help communicate this message, I think that would probably increase the uptake of requests from policymakers coming to geoscientists or other scientists for that matter. Yes, certainly I would, uh, I would be more involved in, in, in policymaking or in policy, and, and I am. I am becoming more involved with the Geothermal Association of Ireland as well, and they are trying to raise awareness in, in geothermal energy. It is something I, I like to do. It's it's a transition transition from just science to implementation science. You can actually you can actually make a difference, and, and it's a it's a nice way of doing it. I think I think it is such an important role, and I completely like echo what you say, Quentin, about also just putting geoscience to kind of more of a more into the forefront, and you know, making people aware that it geoscience itself is such a um diverse area and there's so many skills that we have as geoscientists that aren't that can like we can apply to so many different things not necessarily you know just being geologists and, and geoscientists it's they have so kind of multi-applicational so if you guys were to give any advice for people that want to go to geoscience um it's basically why Ben and I just get you on it. We just want to give you, we, we just want personal advice. Um, uh, <laughs> Say so if we wanted to go into policymaking or, you know, not necessarily on, on as large scale as, as the Eructus or, you know, what would you, 
what would your advice be? Say so go for it. As, as researchers in, at UCD and whatever university may be in Ireland, we get an influx of emails all the time showing different things that, that the university is doing, different calls. But if you actually take the time and you look at what calls are available, there are some very interesting things. And uh, pe- the, the supervisors and PIs are always very happy for you to, to contribute. So if, if you can see, find something that, that piques your interest and you think is nice, I say go for it. I'd see this as a great opportunity to um, improve the image of geoscience in general. Uh, back when I was an undergrad, a lot of graduates were employed in uh, petroleum exploration and raw material extraction for the most part. And there have been certain negative connotations with uh, carbon emissions, you know, certain types of land use with the geosciences. And I think I see this as a great opportunity. I'd really encourage any researchers, regardless of the stage of their career, to maybe step outside their comfort zone a bit and um, promote geosciences as a way for a more sustainable future, because there are so many of the skills that geoscientists have and the knowledge that I think are really crucial in terms of delivering on sustainable development goals in, in so many ways. So I think the more people who, who get up and advise policymakers or their researchers on the opportunities for geoscience knowledge or geosciences in general uh, to contribute to these kinds of things, I think the better. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, I agree. I think geoscientists are totally part of the solution to move towards a greener economy. And uh, yeah, showing that by being more involved is um, it's gold, really, in terms of communication. And just in terms of, you know, our personal <laughs> well-being and, you know, mental health, I suppose, because it's true, you know, like when you work in petroleum uh, geology, especially these days, uh, I mean, it can take its toll on your mental health because you're like, oh, I'm, you know, participating to, you know, the fossil fuel economy and it, it feels bad sometimes, you know, I can relate to that. Do you have a comment, Niamh, before we wrap it up or, or Nick or anyone? Um, no, I'm good. I'm just, yeah, right. it's just really, really, really interesting hearing all about this. And well, now I guess, you know, if I'm ever to buy a property in Ireland, to not get a ground for a basement flat because of radon, but also have somewhere that lives in a <laughs> an area where I can get geothermal heat pump. And <laughs> I wish I wish I, radon. But I mean, so, I also won't be able to afford a house in Ireland for a very long time, so <laughs> that's way down the road. <laughs> I was going to say I wish radon was the only only problem with, with buying a house in Ireland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. On that note, uh, it's all the time we have, uh, folks. So, Quentin, Nick, I'd like to ask you where we can find you on the internet. Um, so, um, Quentin, do you have any um, social media or way that people can, can get in touch with you? Yes, you can find me on, on Twitter. I'm QGPAC, which is actually the initials of my full name. Um, or you can just type in Quentin Crowley, find me on Twitter. Nick? Yes, yeah, I am. Um, I'm on Twitter, although I'm not too active on Twitter. I'm under Go Doctor Nick. Nice, thank you. Well, I guess it just leaves us to say thank you very much, um, Quentin and Nick, for giving us your time today. It has been a really, really interesting chat, and um, yeah, plenty to think about. But yeah, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks very much. 
Bye guys. Thank you for joining. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. So yeah, thanks for listening to iCragorama and see you in two weeks for the season three finale. Wow. Incredible. <laughs> Can't wait. We've made it to the end of the season, Ben. Woo! Yeah. Well, <laughs> we'll see next uh, <laughs> next fortnight. So uh, thank you everybody for listening and, and uh, don't forget to um, give us a, a review on iTunes and um, and just enjoy yourself. Yeah, go have a beer. Go I mean, what? <laughs> go have a pint. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to promote alcoholism on yeah. the podcast. <laughs> Speak responsibly. <laughs> right.